Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, everyone. Um, my name is Tim Besley, uh, and I'm a member of the economics department at the LSE. I hope that you can indulge me for a few minutes as I offer a, 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 some words that will serve as a background to this evening's uh, event, which celebrates the official launch of the Hayek program in economics and political economy here at the LSE. Now, this has required some patience, uh, just as King Charles has to wait until May for his official coronation. So the Hayek program has had to wait since 2020 uh, for its official public launch. Um, many of you will know that F.A. Hayek was a member of the economics department at LSE, a Nobel laureate, and one of the most important thinkers of the 20th century. Many of his writings were concerned with the challenges of his time, including the schism that was dividing the world into two camps, which ultimately led to what we now refer to as the Cold War. At its heart was a divide between different social, political, and economic systems. In The Road to Serfdom, which is still widely read today, Hayek took a firm stance on one side of the argument. But his fame as a social and political thinker should not take away from the fact that in his time, he was viewed as a mainstream economist, with his classic essay on the use of knowledge in society being published in the American Economic Review, which is still regarded as one of the most prestigious journals in our discipline. And his debates with Keynes on macroeconomic policy were based on some of the principal cleavages in macroeconomics at the time. Outside of economics, the constitution of liberty is still regarded as a classic statement of liberal thinking on the foundations of social and political order in a free society. It's striking that the core challenges that motivated Hayek remain in the world today, where democracy is under threat and changing technologies like social media and artificial intelligence have the potential both to enhance and to disrupt our way of life. There's also a perennial debate about the role of state and market in creating flourishing societies Finding the right balance between individual freedom and the satisfaction of collective wants remains a core challenge, perhaps the core challenge, for social science. Although this is the official launch of the program, as I mentioned earlier, we've been moving forward since 2020, despite the challenges posed by lockdowns and restrictions on in-person activities. So far, the program has supported a number of lectures, PhD research projects, along with vibrant discussion groups on radical uncertainty and behavioral public policy. All of these have connected the themes in Hayek's work. We expect the, the program to grow and to support more activities at the LSE, and we have ambitious plans for the future. So please, watch this space. I don't want to delay you any further. I will now hand over to Nikki Lacey, who will introduce tonight's panel. Good evening, everyone. It's a really such a great pleasure for me to welcome you very warmly to the LSE this evening for this event. My name's Nicola Lacey, and I'm a school professor of law, gender, and social policy in the law school here. I'm also delighted to be able to welcome our fantastic panel this evening, our principal speaker, Lord Sumption, and his discussants, Professor Martin Loughlin and Dr. Munira Mirza this evening. Lord Sumption is a well-known British author, both a widely published historian and a former senior judge who sat on the Supreme Court, the UK, between 2012 and 2018. 
A renowned commentator on public affairs, Lord Sumption delivered the 2019 Wreath Lectures, later published as a book, Trials of the State, Law and the Decline of Politics. This evening, he's going to examine the desire among some members of the public to have a democracy without parties or professional politicians, an idea that has its roots in the ancient world, and he will speak for about 20 to 25 minutes. His presentation will be followed by a panel discussion with Professors Loughlin and Dr. Mercer. Professor Loughlin is Professor of Public Law here at LSE and the author of many influential books and articles, most re recently a monograph provocatively entitled Against Constitutionalism. Munira Mitzer is a British political advisor who served as director of the number 10 policy unit under Prime Minister Boris Johnson from 2019 until earlier this year, having previously served as one of the deputy mayors of London with responsibility for education and culture, topics on which she has written extensively in books such as The Politics of Culture. So we're very lucky to have you all here this evening. For those Twitter users in the audience, and we know, although we can't see you, there are many of you joining us online on Zoom, which we're delighted by as well. The hashtag for today's event is at LSE Hayek. The event is being recorded and it'll be made available as a podcast, assuming we don't have any unforeseen uh, technical problems. We'll, of course, have a chance for you to put your questions for a quarter of an hour or so at the end of the panel. And with the help of our wonderful student stewards, you'll be able to direct them to me or via another uh, marvellous colleague uh, on, for those of you online uh, with the Q&A function. But now I'm delighted to hand over first to Lord Sumption. Thank you very much. Good evening. We are here, in a sense, to commemorate the work of Friedrich Hayek. Most of his ideas have caught on somewhere, but there is one idea which has never caught on anywhere and which I venture to suggest never will. Uh, it is his scheme for reforming the electoral system set out in The Political Order of a Free People, published in 1979. In that work, Hayek proposed a legislative assembly which would be charged with devising general rules of law. Membership of this assembly was to be limited to mature individuals aged between 45 and 60 who would be elected for single terms, non-renewable, of 15 years. One-fifteenth of the assembly uh, uh, would be elected each year but only by those citizens who were in the, their 45th year. So each voter would vote only once in his lifetime. All persons who had ever served in any governmental capacity or been involved with party politics would be ineligible. <laughs> now this fantastic constitutional scheme reminds one perhaps of Edmund Burke's famous mockery of the arch-constitution maker of the French Revolution, the Abbé Sieyès. Like all of Hayek's work, it is informed by an intense suspicion of democracy, combined with an acceptance that some form of democracy was probably a necessary foundation of the liberal state. His legislative assembly 
is essentially a device for insulating legislators from the pressures of public opinion, which was partisan and self-interested, and from party politics generally, which pandered to the public to public opinion too readily. Hayek believed that an arrangement like his would have the best chance of devising laws according to some objective standard of wisdom. Uh, Hayek's electoral scheme uh, was certainly in its details extremely novel, but the general idea behind it stands in an ancient tradition of anti-politics. He believed that politics, uh, as it was actually conducted in Western democracies, had degenerated into a crude contest for the right to deploy political power in support of the interests or prejudices of particular sections of the electorate and the personal ambitions of politicians. For these corrupting effects of democratic practice, Hayek blamed the existence of a class of professional politicians, and indeed, at times, the political process itself. Now, although there's no prospect of any society ever adopting Hayek's ideal constitution, he had identified a, a real issue, as he so often did. Uh, direct democracy was inherently unstable. Representative democracy was stabler, but inevitably involved the creation of a body of representatives. And that entailed the creation of a political class beholden uh, in some degree to their supporters uh, among uh, some section of the electorate. Uh, professional politicians have never been popular as a class. Abuse of them uh, dates back uh, to the graffiti in the ruins of Pompeii and no doubt uh, to older examples which have not survived. Uh, the, this, the contempt for politicians uh, is an instinct which, as far as carefully reasoned treatises is concerned, goes back at least to Aristotle, who was the ultimate source of quite a number uh, of Hayek's ideas. Now, ancient Athens was not, of course, a representative democracy. It was a direct democracy in which the entire uh, class of free males met and voted in the assembly. But it required the appointment uh, of officials, public officers, with delegated authority to administer the state, and that gave rise to many of the same issues. Aristotle distrusted democracy because it led to the creation of a political class of administrators and governors, which would inevitably, as he thought, uh, end up by favoring its own economic interests. He therefore favored the selection of officers by lot for short and non-renewable terms. Now, this distrust of professional politics is one of the most powerful and consistent themes uh, of political history. Uh, it is inevitably stronger in a representative democracy because the main object of representation is to mitigate, to dilute the impact of popular sentiment. The main purpose of representation in a de democratic system has always been to produce an elite uh, which would restrain the unthinking impulses and sectional interests of the electorate. James Madison, the chief draftsman of the United States Constitution, put this very clearly in his contributions to the Federalist Papers. 
his main concern was that democratic majorities tended to use their powers to seize the wealth of the richer members of society, for example, by passing laws cancelling debts owed to them. A chosen body of citizens, he said, was more likely to serve the long-term interests of the people than the people themselves. But resentment of the political class is today very much alive and well. Uh, to some extent, this is of course due uh, to scandals about sex or money, but it would be, still be a powerful force, uh, even if politicians invariably behaved with perfect rectitude, uh, as in fact most of them do. The main factor at work is the feeling uh, that even if politicians began as splinters from the same wood as their electors, life in the Westminster bubble insulates them from those whom they represent. The fact uh, that politicians are by definition middle class, even if they didn't start that way, and are paid about three times the national average earnings, intensifies that feeling. Proposals to pay MPs properly invariably are met by a wave of instinctive and a venomous popular hostility. Now these instincts are what lie behind the strong pressures in modern democracies to devise methods for circumventing the political process. The crudest mechanism, uh, and the one which historically has most often succeeded, is simply the displacement of democratic politics by a strong man, a course apparently favoured by a significant proportion of the British population, according to Hansard Society's uh, survey of political engagement for 2019. Most of those who thought this uh, added that they thought that this strong man should not be hampered by parliament, courts or other political impedimenta. But that is far from being the only uh, method of circumventing uh, the political process. Others are more subtle. In Britain, referenda have been employed in cases where for one reason or another there is a disconnect between parliamentary and public sentiment. In other countries, there are constitutional provisions for regular referenda, although it's fair to say that they usually require a formal legislative process subject to a condition of popular endorsement, and therefore don't entirely escape the political process. Judicial intervention has often been proposed as an alternative uh, to politics, notably by supporters of the more expansive concepts of human rights. Professor Conor Gayati, in his book on Fantasy Island, applauds the transfer of powers from an elected legislature to judges on the grounds that, they, that the courts are a forum for rational argument as opposed to the rhetoric on show in the House of Commons. There is no room here, he says, for the sort of sleights of hand that draw applause at a party conference. Citizens' assemblies are perhaps among the most interesting proposals and at the moment the most fashionable. Citizens' assemblies are essentially large focus groups selected on a basis which is intended to be representative of the population at large and is supplied with somewhat more information about the relevant issue uh, than the respondents to a standard opinion poll. 
Uh, all the models so far proposed for citizens' assemblies treat them as consultative bodies and leave the final decision uh, to elected legislatures. But it's fair to say that some citizens' assemblies have a semi-official status, notably uh, in Ireland and Scotland. The idea behind citizens' assemblies uh, is that a body of non-politicians may achieve a collective wisdom uh, to which professional politicians are blinded uh, by ambition or by distance from their electors. The common objective of all these proposals um, is uh, to create an ad hoc group whose conclusions would provide an alternative source of political legitimacy. Uh, I would suggest that these attempts uh, to circumvent or marginalize the political process uh, misunderstand the basic function of politics in a democracy. Professor Gayati is probably right to say that forensic argument in a court of law is a surer route to the ideal solution uh, than political debate. Uh, but politics is not a quest uh, for ideal solutions, even assuming that there is such a thing. Political differences are not usually due to incomplete or defective information, which have only to be rectified for the truth to come forth. They are usually due to irreconcilable moral uh, starting points or to conflicting interests. The function uh, of any political process is to accommodate differences of opinion and interest so that we can live together uh, in some kind of harmony without the systematic application of coercion. Politics, as I have said on a number of occasions before, uh, is a marketplace. Parties bid for the widest possible range of support in the interest of achieving a parliamentary majority. They adjust their offering to appeal to those who are not part of their base, uh, to take in voters who might otherwise vote for other parties. This process makes them powerful engines of national compromise. The result will not necessarily be intellectually pure or morally admirable. It may not even produce the most popular solution. But in human affairs, the solution that best accommodates our differences is often one that nobody prefers, but that everyone can live with. I would accept uh, that this is an idealistic view of the political process. Things don't always work out like that. And it is true that what I have called the political market has not worked well over the past seven or eight years, as both national parties have drifted towards the extremes uh, under pressure from their own activists and tactical entryists from different political traditions. There is a tendency for parties uh, which are inevitably more ideologically driven than those who vote for them to double down uh, on defeat. But it isn't possible uh, to ignore the political market indefinitely without getting punished at the polls and threatened with extinction, as the Labour Party was in 1982 and again in 2019. Both of the major parties are in the process of trying to recover a broad market position in order to avoid extinction. So uh, party politics may work after all. 
The problem about most schemes of anti-politics is that they are too idealistic. Some of them assume that there is an ideal solution to the dilemmas of humanity which we can reason our way towards. On this view of things, the objective of any system of government should be to discover that ideal, or at least to discover the nearest thing that we can get to it. That was the avowed objective of the late Ronald Dworkin in his book Justice for Hedgehogs. He argued with considerable skill, uh, but to my mind most unconvincingly, <laughs> for a scheme of objectively justifiable rights uh, which were to be discovered and applied by judges without any legislative or other democratic input. Most anti-political systems seek to insulate the process of legislation from the personal interests of its proponents or their constituents or the sometimes meretricious processes uh, of mass persuasion. This is, after all, the prime purpose of John Rawls' famous original position. <coughs> Rawls was not, of course, designing a constitution, but his thought experiment was part of an argument in favour of a rejection of personal interest as an acceptable feature of public decision-making. This is one point which Rawls had in common with Hayek, who was designing a constitution and placed the exclusion of personal interest at its heart. Now, these are prospectuses for an ideal society in which human beings are other than they actually are. They seek to arrive at an idea of justice divorced from the greed, ambition, and self-interest which have always characterized human beings and always will. This is not a practical proposition. Politics has to accommodate greed, ambition, and self-interest and not to defy them. Now that perhaps is not a criticism which could be levied, uh, leveled at citizens' assemblies. They seek to reproduce divisions of opinion and interest in miniature, but to resolve them by a process of informed and rational argument. Now that sounds admirable in principle, but it is open to some quite serious objections. Two objections seem to me to be particularly powerful. Um, one uh, is that uh, citizens' assemblies, as it seems to me, lack the essential quality of legitimacy. Legitimacy is the quality which makes a decision acceptable to those who disagree with it. They have to have a shared respect for the decision-making process which transcends their differences over any particular issue. The main source of that shared respect in a democracy is the fact that the decision has been made by representatives to whom each, whom each citizen has had an equal part uh, an equal voice in their choosing. The participants in citizens' assemblies have been selected by political scientists and do not profess to represent anyone but themselves. There is no reason why those who disagree with whatever conclusion they reach uh, should regard them as legitimate. The second objection is that the deliberations of a citizens' assembly are unlikely to do justice to the complexity of modern decision-making. Most public decisions involve a trade-off between the benefits of the proposal in question and its costs or collateral drawbacks. 
Most public decisions involve opportunity cost. If we do not do A, if we do A, we cannot afford to do B, or may be unable to do C. Citizens' assemblies are in effect invited to pronounce on the desirability of proposals in the abstract. The issues are oversimplified in the material presented to them. This is not so uh, in an assembly of professional politicians, most of whom are likely to have a broader and deeper and certainly longer experience of the relevant considerations, including those which come in uh, from the margins from other areas of policy. Britain is a particularly hostile environment to ideas like these. We are a parliamentary state in a far more fundamental sense than most people realise. This is because of the way in which Britain's institutions uh, developed uh, from a monarchical constitution in which the Crown originally had absolute power. The system rests entirely on the convention that ministers derive their powers from the Crown but are answerable exclusively for their exercise to the elected chamber of parliament. Ministers have no personal legitimacy uh, independent of the support of the House of Commons. Uh, we have had some spectacular reminders of this truth uh, in the fact that the last three uh, prime ministers have all been ejected uh, by the MPs of their own party. Um, <coughs> Uh, and thereby lost the command of the House of Commons, which is conventionally indispensable to the subsistence of a government. In Britain, at least, it seems clear that we cannot have democracy without politics uh, or politics uh, without politicians. Thank you very much for listening to me. Thank you very much, Assumption. Now we're moving over to Professor Lockett. Well, thank you very much, uh, Nikki, and I'm grateful to Lord Assumption for such a wide-ranging presentation in such a short period of time. I want to try to address only one aspect of what Lord Assumption is talking about, and it's a central aspect of the theme of the seminar program, uh, which is uh, Hayek's view of politics and political parties in particular. But I want to approach it firstly a little indirectly. I only have 10 minutes, so I'll keep to the point. In his account of the modern state, Michael Oakeshott, the distinguished LSE political theorist, uh, explained that the state expresses an unresolved tension between two irreconcilable dispositions. The first is that of understanding the state as an association constituted purely by its rule structure. The state as a normative scheme and the second is the state as some sort of corporate entity charged with the delivery of policies and purposes and programs. Oakeshott emphasized that these are not two separate ideal constructs, but rather the modern state expresses this tension irreconcilable but intrinsic tension between these two 
different elements of the state. So the, the two different elements are symbols of the self-division of the character of this ambiguous type of association. The character of the state, he's saying, can't be grasped if we see it solely as a corporation, a power complex in pursuit of a project, whether that be the greatest happiness of the greatest number, or from each according to their ability to each according to their needs, or simply a project that seeks to maximize gross domestic product. But neither can the state be treated purely as a legal order that somehow embodies this ineffable idea of the rule of law. The state expresses an inbuilt tension between law and policy, rules and purposes, order and organization. A corporate state like the People's Republic of China still requires a rule <coughs> in order to stabilize itself and maintain its authority. But similarly, we can't conceive of a laissez-faire state, a state that is purely a rule structure where the, of the agents of the state are custodians of the rules but have no purposes or policies. I start with Oakshot because I think Oakshot is undeniably correct. And I see you all in my imagination nodding <laughs> Thank you, Tim. <laughs> Let us now turn to Hayek. Hayek sees exactly the point that uh, Oakeshott is making, but far from accepting it, he argues that the state as a normative scheme is the only legitimate type of state there can be. The state as project, the state with a series of policies, is a corruption. The product of an erroneous belief that society can be constructed anew through the exercise of human reason. This, he says, is the source of collectivistic or socialist ideas that are undermining human freedom. As Tim Besley mentioned in his introduction, Hayek first presented his argument in his polemical work of 1944, The Road to Serfdom, where he argued that the Nazi regime was not an irrational dictatorship, but rather was the culmination of, of a set of constructivist beliefs that emanate from Enlightenment thought. But the implications of his argument are made explicit only in his three-volume study, written in the 1970s on law, legislation, and liberty. Here, Hayek presents three basic theses, and he devotes one volume each to deliver an analysis of each of these theses. The first thesis is that there are fundamental differences between what he calls spontaneous order and organization. Spontaneous order is an evolutionary form with its own dynamic. Organization is constructed. It's it's a human creation, uh, and, it gives, and this distinction gives rise to two different understandings of law. Law, in the terms of organization, is legislation. It's the law, the rules made by the authorized lawmaking institutions of the state. Law, in the image of spontaneous order, 
is the evolution of the normative scheme and he has gives an ideal illustration of this an idealized account of the common law as an illustration of this and he claims law precedes legislation the second thesis is that the idea of social justice is a mirage it acquires meaning only when we embrace the idea of the state as a purpose of association as a purpose of organization the third thesis is that a system of government in which the representative body both enacts legislation and directs governmental action necessarily leads to the gradual transformation of the spontaneous order of a free society into a totalitarian regime all right i've now reached the point where i can address political parties political parties come into being in the era marked by the growing influence of the state as an organization hayek's first thesis they exist to pursue purposive ideological projects of promoting ideas of social justice second thesis and the third thesis this system of party government leads inevitably to the establishment of some totalitarian regime the solution hayek sketches in volume 3 of law legislation and liberty uh, and as lord sumption explains is to establish a model constitution a model constitution structured to ensure that restrictions on liberty can only be imposed in accordance with general rules of just conduct legislation must be minimal and must be the outcome of opinion not of interests <clears throat> interests are of course what political parties promote consequently again as lord sumption has mentioned only those with experience of life that is over the age of 45 here i think hayek was being far too liberal i would have said 55 myself <laughs> but only those can select representatives to the legislative assembly to conclude the radical shall i say unreal character of hayek's argument we can now see evolves in stages he first rejects the very idea of a dualistic tension in the character of the state and argues that all governmental activities that use power measures enterprise policies for the purpose of delivering the good are illegitimate that's the rationale for political parties but he goes much further he eventually comes to realize that the very idea of a governing order organized on a territorial basis must be rejected why because he realizes that the notion of boundedness of there being a territory that we call a state is what sits at the core of the idea of solidarity 
And it's this idea of solidarity that's drive this sense that we British are different from the French and we build a sense of a political unity as a people. It's this idea that drives these erroneous notions of social justice. So it's not just political parties that must be rejected in Hayek's vision. It's the entire way of thinking politically. Freedom can only exist, he says, in the evolving order of society. Hayek actually rejects liberalism and constitutionalism as political ideologies and sets in place a libertarian philosophy of global ordering determined by the spontaneous workings of the markets. And with this, Hayek enters in this immortal phrase of Hobbes, the kingdom of the fairies. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you so much, uh, Martin. Dr. Mesa, thank, thank you. you. Uh, first of all, thank you to the LSE for inviting me to, to speak this evening. And uh, thank you also to Lord Sumption for a fascinating and I think very persuasive uh, lecture on the, uh, the, the merits of uh, having a political class, albeit with a caveat, not necessarily this political class. <laughs> um, I, I just want to preface my remarks by making two points. The first is that uh, last week I had launched a new organization called Civic Future, which is uh, uh, an organization that aims to identify and train talented people uh, to go into public life. It's a, a non-party political, not-for-profit organization. Uh, uh, grounded in the values of liberal democracy. But you can tell from the way I describe it that I believe fundamentally that politics and public life is still a worthwhile and noble pursuit. And I haven't given up altogether on the idea that we might reform and improve uh, the system that we have. Um, my, my second point is that I speak not as a academic or political scientist uh, on this subject, but as somebody uh, uh, who has observed politics up close. I've been involved in national and regional government for on and off for around 15 years. And uh, I, uh, I suppose I'm speaking from uh, what the, co the common parlance now is lived experience. So these are um, uh, various observations that I, I've made. But I, 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 I suppose my, uh, my main point is to, uh, to agree with Lord Sumption that I think uh, political, a political class, a representative uh, elected group of individuals uh, is a fundamental part of uh, uh, the democratic system we have and is a, a vital and important part of it. Uh, I think that the representative element, uh, which is the, the, the populist pillar of democracy, the element that links the elite to the wider public and to, uh, uh, to the competing interests of the public, uh, is the only way to hold an elite to account. And of course, all societies have elites. Uh, and we would be naive to think that uh, elites don't exist, that individuals don't rise uh, through ambition or expertise or, or uh, uh, high performance in some way to, to, re to, to run 
countries to run governments, uh, but uh, the thing that, that holds them to the ground or to, to connect them to uh, the will of the people and to give legitimacy to their rule is the idea that you can fundamentally vote them out. And speaking as someone who's worked in government and, and worked on election campaigns, I would say that is a very good disciplining force, the idea that you might not be in your job. Uh, and and uh, uh, we're, we're fortunate that that's the system that, that we have. Of course, many, many other countries do not have um, uh, that, that sense of uh, the popular uh, uh, control uh, and ability to vote out um, their rulers. Um, that's not to say... Uh, of course, that there aren't other aspects of democracy that are also important. Of course, an independent judiciary, uh, 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 an independent, impartial civil service that's there to uh, uh, execute the, the policies that are set out by an elected government. Uh, and, of course, a free press, which I think is a very fundamental part of a democracy. And, again, based on observation, uh, I, I am surprised, I have been surprised, by how much that balance of the different elements of the democratic system actually quite often do work. Um, so it, it was often said to me that, that politicians don't really care about what the public think or politicians are in a bubble and they're removed from public opinion. Actually, in my experience, politicians are very afraid of what the public think and they are very conscious and aware of what voters think in their constituencies. Um, in some cases, maybe they're, they're too aware of the, the very minute detail of swinging <coughs> and so on. But um, there, there is definitely not a, uh, a detachment from public opinion, uh, which I think is a, is a healthy and disciplining force. Uh, and obviously, lots of politicians, all politicians, have their weekly surgeries. In some ways, they see, uh, they see much more of ordinary life or uh, a general everyday life than, than many of the, the, the journalists and the critics who complain about politicians uh, uh, are able to do. So I, I would say that um, uh, in that sense, there are some aspects of our democracy that, that, that do work, that hold politicians to account. There's also, I think, um, in generally our, our, our culture, because of the free press um, and because of uh, the fact that the press can dig into the details of individual uh, politicians' finances and their register of interest. Uh, we are generally a far less corrupt democratic system, political system, than in other countries. And whilst people who work in politics and in government might complain about uh, journalists hunting around for facts to trip them up with, uh, I, I think that's, that's probably a, a good thing on balance. But the downside of all of these things, the intense scrutiny, uh, the intense pressure, the very unforgiving environment of our political system, is that it also has put lots of people off politics. Uh, and uh, I, I meet many people uh, who are very talented, who work in other sectors, who are very publicly spirited and in, in other circumstances might consider going into politics and public life and they just think it's not for me, I couldn't bear that kind of uh, glasshouse environment and therefore I'm, I'm not interested and in maybe we can talk about this a bit more but I think that that, that um, the, the repulsion that people have um, from public life and, and politics I think is a problem uh, in our country. Um, I wanted to um, just reflect on a, a few things that, that both Lord Sumption and Martin made which are uh, on this uh, 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 shift in intellectual opinion, academic opinion about uh, how democracy works. I was rereading in advance of this event um, Peter Mayer's Ruling the Void, which was a, a, a fascinating um, 
account of a shift in the way uh, in which democracy is understood and the hollowing out of political parties in, uh, in Europe. Uh, and in the UK, uh, the political parties, the mainstream political parties, the Conservative Party and the Labour Party in the 1950s had mass membership, uh, I think around two, two and a half million for the Conservative Party, um, slightly lower for Labour, around one million, but then once you add in the trade union membership, much, much larger. There was a sense in which a very large proportion of the population by comparison to today, was involved in politics, and politics served as a way of mediating particular interests and resolving them and uh, giving legitimacy to, to decisions that have been made. And for various reasons, which I'll, I'll, I'll try and um, sketch out, uh, that, that culture of the political party, the organization of political parties has hollowed out. It's a much, much smaller membership now. The Conservative Party is more like 200,000. The Labour Party uh, is not as high as it was in the Corbyn period, but it's around 400,000. Uh, so they're much smaller and far less representative of broad public opinion, uh, which, as, 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 as we've seen in the last uh, a few months, you can see that a very small number of people, uh, therefore, are, are influential in political parties in the way that, um, uh, in the past, those political parties would have had to represent and think, as, as, as the other speakers have said, would have had to think about broader opinion. Uh, but that hollowing out of political parties has uh, either been the cause of or the result of a shift in thinking about democracy generally, in that if democracy and politics is not about uh, mediating broad public opinion, if it is more about what works rather than what works for me, uh, then it is uh, really about getting the right solution. I think um, Lord Sumption makes that point that actually politics is not about the technocratic correct solution because from different perspectives, different interests, there is not an, a shared agreement on what is correct. And there are many policies where different interests, simply different groups in society simply will disagree because their interests are irreconcilable. Um, but the loss of political parties as a mediating force uh, has coincided with this shift in understanding the purpose of democracy as being really about having uh, now uh, a way of uh, 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 trying to resolve differences by saying there's a, there's a correct way, there's a correct kind of policy which all sensible uh, thinking people should agree on. Uh, but that's not really how, how politics works. And I think that um, the intellectual uh, shift towards things like citizens' assemblies and, and, and so on. Um, uh, and I, I heard it the other day. I was at a, a, a breakfast event with a, a, a group of scientists talking about the issue of longevity. And I sat next to somebody who, a uh, very smart, able person who should probably in a different world would have gone into politics. And she said to me, oh, I wish we could just have technocrats running the country. And it's a very common refrain, people just are so fed up with the current system. Um, but really what they're saying is, I don't think that the representative system, politicians having to listen to public opinion, having to mediate these competing interests, is good for our country. I would rather there was a select group of technocrats and clever experts who could do it, who could do it for us. Of course, the problem with that, that is that technocrats and experts have their own interests and they're not always aware of those interests. And uh, on this, I, I completely agree with Law Sumption that uh, if we were to ask the independent judiciary to judge on political questions, they would themselves have their own political and moral views 
and they, their views would be no more legitimate, really, than any other citizen. And so um, that, that shift, I think, um, in the intellectual understanding of democracy, I think, is a problem. Um, it's coincided uh, with a broader structural problem in our economies in liberal democracies, which is uh, that since the 70s, there has been, uh, and, and uh, more intensely in the last 20 years, there has been a, a, a halt in the progress, the economic growth and liberal democracies. So although political parties and, 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 and groups, in particular the, 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 the large constituencies of the working class, uh, were able to realize their uh, aspirations through political systems in the past. Increasingly, it's very difficult for liberal democracies to maintain the idea of progress, to maintain the idea that the system is still delivering progress and benefit to everybody, uh, particularly because of economic stagnation, because of the, the profound economic shocks we've, we've experienced. Uh, there is just widening inequality, and uh, the, the kinds of solutions, the kinds of options that politicians have to maneuver are far less uh, uh, available to them. Uh, they're much more reliant on funding from global markets and the idea that they have this room to maneuver in, in the way that they didn't pass, that, that doesn't really exist to the same extent. So you can see in a country like Italy, it doesn't matter how many uh, radical uh, uh, political parties they elect, they all end up in the same position. They all have to uh, 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 answer to a, a, a kind of global uh, market uh, 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 dictat almost. They have really very little choice as a political party. They're still part of um, the European Union and therefore their room for manoeuvre is very limited and therefore you can see the mounting frustration uh, uh, from that, that population. Um, sorry, I'm very conscious of time. I'll try and be quick. What's, what's, the, what's the, the material effect of all of these changes on the political class? Well, I would say that the political class is itself affected uh, 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 I can't remember if it was Lord Sumption or another a writer um, who made this point about audience democracy. Maybe it was uh, Peter Mayer, but the idea that democracy has moved, um, 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 politics has moved from being a participatory process to being a spectator process. People are more and more detached from politics. They're not joining political parties. When they go and vote, they're more likely now than in the past to be deciding the day before they go into uh, the voting booth. Um, uh, there's, a, there's just a much weaker attachment to a particular idea or set of ideas when they go into, uh, when, when they do participate in politics. And as a result, the political class, the people who go into politics, play a different role. They are not representatives in the same way of a constituency in society. Uh, they're almost uh, uh, performers in themselves, and uh, uh, they have, in many cases, retreated from their own political parties. They've retreated into government roles, uh, into public bodies and institutions, uh, or they've ret retreated into the entertainment world. They've become performers. Um, uh, I won't name any names, but you, you can think who I'm talking about. Um, but, but that performative aspect, uh, coupled with a, the kind of managerial aspect um, of politics, uh, reinforces this sense that politics is not really about the public in the way that it perhaps should be. And I think that that has had a very big effect on the kinds of people who then go into politics. The, least, the, the less attractive the political class is, the less likely it is to attract really great people. 
uh, and that's you know, who wants to join a club with people that you don't want to hang out with. I mean, I think we have to be honest. I'm not saying anything. I think that's wildly controversial. But our, you know, the, the talent pool for our political class could be better. Uh, and uh, so I'll, I'll finish on this this final point about the the organisation I set up. Um, I, I I wouldn't claim that it will solve all these problems overnight or even get close to it. But I think it can do uh, two things. The, the first is I think it can reawaken uh, the the idea that public life is still a worthwhile a good thing to do and that we do need good quality people to go into uh, both government but also generally into uh, the, the, the kind of uh, political party world, into political culture and to influence it because um, I think that hollowing out of, of politics um, has uh, changed um, the, the, the kind of people who, who are in that world. Um, but, but linked to that, I think it's also as well as about having highly technical, competent, expert people going to that field. I think it's also about the rejuvenation of ideas. We need better ideas simply to deal with these huge problems facing liberal democracies, to deal with economic stagnation. Uh, and we need people who are capable of thinking outside political tribes. If our political parties no longer represent um, in the same way, if there's been a realignment uh, in different groups in society, then we need our ideas to reflect those new interests. And so I hope that what I do um, is, is both good for, for government, but, but good for generally for uh, the political culture that we live in. Thank you. Well, thanks, many thanks to all three of you for, I think, just completely fascinating uh, presentations. I, by a strange coincidence, my working day today started at nine o'clock in this very room with a lecture on the function and dysfunctions of lay participation in the legal system. And it's quite interesting to me to see how many of the same themes come up. Um, but we now have about 20 minutes uh, for uh, discussion, thanks to the impeccable timekeeping of all of our speakers. Um, and I'm going to open the floor to two questions, both and first from the audience, and our stewards will be kindly coming around with microphones. I'd ask you to wait for the microphone, and please would you keep your questions short and tell us your name and affiliation if you have one. Um, I'd also just like to say I'm going to take two questions at a time just to make sure that we get a good group of questions in it. And if you are directing your question to, in particular to one of the panel, please could you make that clear? Thank you so much. There's a gentleman there and then uh, this woman here. Yeah. Uh, hi, my name's Hamza. I'm currently studying for MSc in Philosophy and Public Policy. Um, I wonder whether the debate is being framed in kind of binary terms, so either we are a direct democracy or we are a parliamentary democracy, and people kind of often point to Switzerland and, and, and really kind of make that distinction. But um, I wonder whether it's, it's not kind of in reality a matter of using direct democracy as more of a supplement, maybe, to try and counter some of the concerns that we're having around um, populism and the way that, you know, a kind of sense of voicelessness or a sense that people don't have an, a viable choice at elections is actually causing them to vote for outliers. So I just wonder what the panel think about the idea that instead of an alternative, we can consider direct democracy to be a supplement that, that might help to address problems of the time now. Thank you so much. Good evening. My name is Sham, and I'm an LSE graduate uh, for the LLM. So my question is for everyone on the floor. It seems to be that there is a central theme to everyone's speech. Um, and there's this dichotomy between one rational thinking, making sure that there's a 
objective answer and then secondly is the electorate and and seeing what everyone has to say and then compromising my question to the floor is is there a situation where these two can converge are they really that different thank you thank you who would like to come in first lord sumption perhaps well perhaps i can um, tackle your point about direct democracy uh, i think that the, there is a real problem about treating direct democracy as you envisage as a supplement to uh, representative democracy. Um, I, I think that you can do it in two ways. One is simply to have a confirmatory public vote about a law that has been conditionally enacted already. That's the system in most European countries whose constitutions provide for referenda. It's also the system that we employed in this country for the Scottish referendum of 1979 and the alternative vote referendum of 2011. Uh, so that is not really uh, acting as a supplement, except in the sense that the public have, so to speak, a veto. Um, the, the consequences of having real de direct democracy which we experienced in the Scottish referendum of 2014 and in the EU referendum of 2016 have been in both cases very unfortunate um, because uh, for reasons I sought to set out towards the end of my remarks over there, um, we are, our whole system depends on our being a parliamentary democracy. Uh, and if you try and introduce uh, a system of direct democracy uh, like as we did in 2016, you end up uh, with tensions between the representatives and the views of the um, electorate in the referendum. Uh, you end up with argument about what the decision in the referendum uh, really meant, given that very few issues are straightforward enough to admit of just a yes-no answer. Uh, a major constitutional crisis resulted between 2016 and 2019 uh, if the result of the Scottish referendum of 2014 uh, had been yes to independence, we would, there would have been exactly the same uh, catastrophes, in my view, arising out of the argument as to what the terms were and what the public must be supposed to have intended to approve. I've also got a few couple of comments on what Hamza raised. I thought when I heard the three presentations we were in danger of breaking out with consensus, but actually <laughs> I disagree with uh, Lord Sumption's uh, analysis there, there, because the sort of direct democracy that you're talking about, for example, citizens' assemblies, uh, I think it's a caricature to think that citizens' assemblies are, are established as an alternative to parliamentary democracy. The fact is there's a gap growing up uh, between the, the political class and the citizenry. And uh, as I understand the evolution of citizens' assemblies, they're really, they're not an alternative to parliamentary representation, but they seek to inform parliament about a series of issues which parliament often, because it's not, because parliament is organized on a two-party system, cannot address these questions because they cut across party lines. And similarly with referenda, I don't think there was any alternative but to hold the 2016 in-out EU referendum. 
Why? Because ever since the 1990s, there had been a growth of Euroscepticism, and the two-party system had seen itself threatened by the rise of UKIP. And uh, there came, uh, during that period, every single major party pledged not to hand over new powers to the European Union without first a referendum being held. So I don't think the Conservatives really had much alternative. But the critical thing is not the 2016 referendum. Everybody forgets about the 2015 Act of Parliament that authorised the referendum. And in that Act of... If you read the proceedings in that Act of Parliament, first, 90% of MPs voted in favour of holding a referendum. The Conservatives led and said, we, 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 wa we will want to give the people the final say. The Labour spokesperson came along and said, everyone going into that, that, that booth on referendum day will know exactly what they're voting for. Caroline Lucas, the single Green Party representative, spoke in that debate and said, I am in favour of the referendum, not because I'm against the EU, but because I'm in favour of democracy. So, for right or wrong, the, the, the MPs transferred the decision to the electorate, and then we found that 75% of those MPs voted to remain, and that was the... That was the that was the crisis, that we had a crisis of parliamentary representation where the political elites were not representing the views of the majority of the citizens. And we had a crisis of governmental authority because the government, although not split on leave or not, was split over the terms of leaving. So the crisis didn't come about because of the referendum. The crisis came about because there was already a crisis in parliamentary representation where the the political parties were, 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 were no longer acknowledging, responding to the concerns of the electorate. I mean, the Labour Party, two-thirds of Labour constituencies voted to leave. Yet within a year or two, the Labour leadership was calling for a second referendum. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that reinforces the point I was trying to make earlier, but less elegantly, about the, the detachment between... Which is a... a, a a historical trend, a detachment from political parties in their in, in their policies and their manifestos and the, the public opinion, which I think has happened on, on uh, in all the mainstream parties. Um, on on the particular question of is there is there a sort of hybrid, is there a blended approach to direct democracy and parliamentary democracy? I mean, I think it the, the, it depends. Um, there are examples of. Uh, direct democracy, which are which require people, for example, at a local level, they can vote to um, to allow their council to raise council tax um, up to a certain level. They can, um, if, if the if if the local electorate are content for the council to do that, then the council is able to, and that can pay for local costs. There hasn't been, a, I think, as far as I know, a case where the public have voted to allow the council to raise council tax, and it's caused problems. But they have been given that choice. So there might be um, cases where in very precise, um, you know, very precise, very focused ways, you may allow um, a referenda, which I think are, um, you know, been, have been proven in the British system. Where I think citizens' assemblies can be useful, they can inform uh, uh, parliamentarians um, in their thinking, they can, um, uh, and also be a very, I think, potentially very good way of encouraging participatory democracy um, amongst people, I think are 
2016 referendum might have been better for to have more, um, uh, you know, town hall type events uh, where where people could have debated and discussed. I think, I think there were quite a few, but um, you know, I think more of that could happen. Um, but it's uh, uh, you know, I think there's probably uh, a, a point where the public should be asked to vote on decisions. It's the, the act of voting, it's the act of being able to cast a vote and, and for, for that to be a, a, a right that's given equally to everybody. It's the equal citizenship aspect of it, um, rather than taking even a, a, a bunch of people at random and putting them in a room. Um, they, they themselves then become uh, a separate group. And I think giving people, maintaining that link between uh, the individual uh, and their ability to choose and, and then the, the decision that gets made, I think is extremely important. Thank you all. Um, I think we can fit in two more questions. I'd like to take one online. So this gentleman here is ready. And then if you could read out one of the online, that would be wonderful. Thank you. Hi, my name's Danny Hattam, and I am a staffer here at the LSE. Uh, conceding that professional politicians have always taken abuse, I was thinking of uh, an anecdote. 1952, Senator Robert Taft is running for the Republican nomination for president. His wife is campaigning, and someone in the crowd says, finally, vote for Taft, we'll have a common man be president. And Mrs. Taft shouts back that her husband was first in his class at Yale College and second in his class at Harvard Law School. He is not a common man. And she got a standing ovation. This is unimaginable today. Uh, we live in a, I would just ask the panel to, to consider that we live in a hyper-individualized, hyper-libertarian culture that has atomized our shared political culture. And that this is one of the reasons why we can't agree uh, to uh, the expertise or hierarchy required in representative politics, and that this is the fundamental reason why this kind of bowling alone type thesis. Thank you. Thanks so much. Our online question, I'm going to take one other question that was back up there. It was the woman in the, yes, so you can line yourself up, Stuart. Thank you so much. I'm Sonam, and I'm a Messine human rights student, and my question is like, um, if we go with direct democracy, uh, we might get into the majoritarianism government and won't it influence the minority rights because the people like the citizens will, you know, the majority will have a say in it and won't it be inferring the rights of minority? Thank you very much. And finally, our online question. Thank you, Shona. Thank you. Right. So the, the one we have online is from John Holbrook, a barrister in London. Lord Sumption says political parties have drifted away from voters by adopting extreme positions. Surely the problem is the converse of this. The drift away from voters has happened because political parties have converged on a managerialist, internationalist, uninspiring centre ground? <laughs> oh, very nice questions. Very different. You know, it's quite a poser. We've got about seven minutes. Well, I'm not going to take uh, seven minutes to answer that. <laughs> Um, I think it depends what period of time you're looking at. Uh, uh, the description of any of the governments that we have had since the referendum uh, as basically managerial seems to me to be plainly wrong. Uh, whether you mean competent management or just technocratic management, um, uh, it might be a fair description of the um, uh, of the quality of government at times during Tony Blair's prime ministership and during the coalition between 2010 and 2015. Um, 
I, I think that the question actually fundamentally misunderstands the problem. This is a temporary thing. Um, it, because no political party can defy uh, basic human instincts for all that long. Uh, but at the moment, we, and this is part of the legacy of Brexit, we are suffering from a system under which the first-past-the-post system um, uh, means uh, that you can only get a voice in Parliament if you come in from the margins by colonising an existing party. And that is what has driven um, uh, both political parties to the extremes and has caused them now, both case, in both cases, to realise uh, the damage that they have done themselves and to try and row back. I may be thinking too synoptically, to use the Hayekian expression, but I think all three questions address the common theme. And um, I think our barrister friend, I didn't catch his name, sorry, uh, online, uh, it, it identifies an important problem because we have grown up in the modern era with ideological politics where these are 19th century ideologies of liberalism, conservatism, and socialism. And people knew what they were voting for when they voted for one of these three parties. And I don't think this is the case any longer. Whether we got managerial politics or not is a, a bit, but we certainly got post-ideological politics. And uh, insofar as uh, direct democracy, in, in relation to the second question from Sorna, uh, I'm much less concerned with abuse of minority rights. I'm co more concerned with the abuse of the majority's position. I'm an old-fashioned utilitarian in that sense, greatest happiness of the greatest number, and we're losing the power of majorities to develop effective political will. That's the real political problem, or one of the real political problems of our time, because Back to the first question, it all, it's, we're living in a narcissistic age where it's all about identity politics. It's no longer the politics of class has gone. It's no longer the politics of redistribution or not. It's about identities. And that's just, I'm stopping there. Amira, <laughs> uh, there were so many good questions. I'm afraid I can't answer them all. Um, on on uh, the, the, the question about minority rights, I think that's why uh, alongside representative democracy we do have a structure uh, of uh, uh, fundamental rights that uh, you know, uh, go back in the English common law tradition and, uh, 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 and uh, we have a, a, a legal framework for non-discrimination. So you have, you have other ways of being able to protect and um, preserve uh, the minorities' uh, uh, rights and protections in our society. Um, on the on the point about individualized culture and the loss of that, uh, which has made it harder for political elites to govern, uh, there's a there's a great book by Adrian Waldridge about the um, the rise of meritocracy, um, which makes a very very persuasive case for meritocracy as a ideal at the heart of liberal democracy. But he also points out that in reality, uh, in the last 50 years in, in Western democracies, the ideal of meritocracy uh, hasn't really worked in the way that it should. And we do have elites that 
are no longer no longer sense that they are responsible to their national population, that they have aspirations to be global in their outlook. Uh, they spend a great deal of their time on planes. They go to conferences that, like Davos, and therefore their own personal experience of the world is they are the anywheres and the, the rest of the country are somewheres. I think that sociological shift has affected politics. It's made the public more skeptical about the political class. And I don't know if that's a hyper-liberal individualized culture uh, or whether there are lots of different trends converging. You can have these very contradictory, apparently contradictory trends. So the rise of social justice as a cultural phenomenon that you have young people, but also corporations now, you know, big companies uh, saying that they care about social justice, whilst at the same time, you know, workers' rights have clearly been rolled back uh, in, in um, the US and the UK. So you have this apparently contradictory shift. Um, uh, and, uh, but I think the thing that, that, that has changed is that the political elite uh, have uh, uh, thought of themselves not as guardians uh, in, a, in a national framework, but increasingly an international framework, which may have something to do with the way in which our economies have also become internationalized, have become very dependent on financial <laughs> sectors and so on. Um, and that's the, um, the, the wake-up call, I guess, that the Brexit referendum uh, uh, exposed that cleavage in our society. And I think it's reconcilable. I think that we can uh, rec uh, reconcile that global elite um, that, that we have, as it were. Uh, and many people have said since 2016 that they were not aware of how left behind many constituencies, many communities felt in the UK, uh, and that it has opened their eyes. So in that sense, I think that whatever you may think of the, the outcome of the referendum, it has certainly, I think, um, raised people's awareness of, of other people's positions, which is ultimately what you would want in a democratic culture. Well, thank you all so very much. I'm afraid that we're out of time, but I think we can all agree that this has been a really marvelous uh, arrival of the Hayek program back on campus, but you know, combining that with uh, our online audience, we've had three really rich and very stimulating uh, presentations. I'm so grateful to all of you, as I'm sure the audience is as well, both here and online. Will you join me in thanking uh, the panelists and all the... Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.